Welcome to 321i Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman-Cohen, the chair and co-founder of iRelaunch, and your host for today. Today, we welcome Kara Golden. Kara is the founder and CEO of Hint, a lifestyle company specializing in unsweetened flavored water that has also launched into the sunscreen space. Kara is a relauncher, having taken a career break after leaving her role as vice president of shopping and e-commerce partnerships at AOL, where she helped lead growth of its startup shopping business to a $1 billion enterprise, and during which the idea for what became Hint started brewing. Kara has been named among Fortune's most powerful women entrepreneurs and Forbes 40 women to watch over 40. She recently launched the podcast Unstoppable, where she interviews disruptors across various industries. Kara's first book, Undaunted, published by Harper Leadership, will be released in October. We're going to talk about relaunching as an entrepreneur with a relauncher who is one of the most exciting entrepreneurial role models and also has an incredible relaunch success story. Kara, welcome to 321i Relaunch. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Well, we are thrilled to have you. And I want to start by talking about your career path that led up to your career break. So I actually went to your LinkedIn profile and it showed that after college, you worked at Time Magazine, uh, you worked in sales at CNN, and then you were at AOL in the early days from 1994 to 2001, and it looks like you had a meteoric rise there. And then four years later, it shows the launch of Hint. Can you please tell our audience what happened at the in the early part of your career and then why you took your career break when you did and what happened on the career break? Yeah, so I was, um, you know, as you mentioned, I, I actually grew up in Arizona and, and decided that I was going to venture off after after college and moved to New York and really always wanted to work in publishing. Um, I always tell people that I, I aim to actually write and, and I wanted to work for one of the timing publications at the time, which was Fortune magazine. And I never ended up getting that job, but I figured I'd at least get a job in the building. And so <laughs> I, uh, in, in, in hopes of maybe one day switching over, um, you know, to the editorial, which I never did, but it was interesting. I, I, um, my first role at, at time, uh, was in circulation. I didn't even know what circulation was. I, I don't even think when I took the role exactly, but I, I learned pretty quickly that, and, and I still talk about it as one of the, uh, you know, huge, biggest, uh, times when I just learned so much and, and specifically about the consumer. So circulation in the magazine business is really about, uh, you know, why is the customer buying, um, including the offers that they're buying from, how long is their subscription, all of those kind of things. And there's a whole science behind that, which I think time is, is you know, pretty Good at so again, like it wasn't anything that I had learned in school, but I it it was fascinating to me, and I worked for super great people, and then I left and and went on to uh, work for another great company called CNN, and that was early '90s. They were just kind of 
you know, they had been on the map for a while, but news was was fairly new to Ted Turner and and uh, was, you know, really kind of getting going. And I was running the um, airline and airport circulation for Time Inc. at the time. And uh, Ted's Ted Turner's office called me to see if I would be interested in and um, getting involved with this new project that they were thinking of starting that was putting monitors in airports. And so, mm. um, and would I be interested in, they were calling it the airport channel. And wow. <laughs> would I be interested in trying to figure this out? And again, like I, you know, you have to understand that cable news was back in the early nineties. I mean, it was, you know, like not in everybody's house, right? It happened right. to be in my house. Um, in New York, my apartment, because uh, I had so many buildings around me that I couldn't get reception unless I actually had cable. So I was very familiar with it. And, um, and you know, it was a really exciting opportunity. But again, it was one where I felt like I was going to learn a ton. And it was kind of, you know, disruptive. I was breaking ground. Nobody was doing monitors in airports. And then very quickly, uh, the Gulf War rolled around. It was... Um, you know, a crazy time for CNN and really put them on the mm-hmm. map. And, and um, so everybody was kind of all hands on deck to be selling um, CNN. And they put me through a training program and I was doing that. And then I realized that I didn't want to be in advertising sales. Like that was kind of the path that I was on. I was interested in it, but it was not sort of what I ultimately wanted to do. And so I, I um, got uh I'd been dating a really nice guy who I ended up marrying and we moved to San Francisco <laughs> um primarily because of his um sort of like what he thought he wanted to do which was technology law and everybody was doing it in the in San Francisco at the time and it wasn't really happening in New York City and so we figured oh we'll be in San Francisco for a couple of years and then eventually head back to New York which never happened. I mean, 25 years later, we're still we're still in San Francisco. And um, and that's when I went to work for a little startup um, that was a spin out of Apple called Chew Market, which ultimately um, took an investment from AOL and AOL and acquired us and and asked me um, because of what I was doing for Chew Market. It was a shopping CD. And so we put a bunch of catalogers on a disc. And this was again before broad, before like the the whole bandwidth and and um, baud modem it was called was actually available. And so you used to dial up. You had these dial up services, and you know, oh, yeah. and, I remember that. Yeah, I always tell students. <laughs> I said, you know, you would like get in a huge fight with anybody in your family if they like got on the phone while you were in a chat room on AOL or you know trying to do something serious because they would disconnect you. It was like that was you know the world that we were living in, and so yeah. so AOL was super exciting. You know, it was um, not a very big company. I was still able to stay in San Francisco because all the retailers were all over the U.S., but the company was based in Virginia. So I was um, traveling a ton and um, not only to our corporate offices once a week in Virginia, but also just, you know, I was on the road constantly. And in uh, 99, I had, I became pregnant with our first daughter and had her and then um and then my other daughter in 2001 and when i 
knew that I was going on maternity leave at that point in 2001, I thought, you know, this isn't really sustainable to be traveling as much as I'm doing. And the United Pilots, like, actually knew my name when I got on the plane, which was extremely <laughs> frightening. I traveled 300,000 miles that year. And wow. uh, I, yeah, it was insane. And so I really kind of at that point, um, after maternity leave, decided I'm going to do something closer to home in Silicon Valley somewhere. Um, but the, and my husband was at a company called Netscape and he was he was commuting as well down to Silicon Valley from San Francisco. And, you know, we both just kind of looked at our life and thought, you know, it's pretty fun what we're doing. We're building, we're both building in different companies in different ways, but um, it's, it's something that is, you know, from a travel standpoint and with kids, it's probably not sustainable to be traveling this much and, you know, whether it's driving or or whether it's flying and so we both decided to kind of you know take a break and and really enjoy our little family and i got pregnant again with our son and um, he was born in 2002 and that's when you know i was kind of interviewing for roles but i was sort of trying to figure out exactly what i wanted to do and i i always talk about and it's a longer story but i talk about you know 9 11 i think had a pretty big impact on me and you know, knowing that I, you know, lived in, in New York and, and that I had been in, you know, the world trade center so often and, and um, had almost taken a role there. And I knew friends who had been through it as well. And, and I just felt like, you know, if I want to do something in my life and, and, you know, work outside of the home, I want to do something that really makes a difference. And I didn't know what that meant. It was just sort of, you know, what I would share with my friends and my family about, you know, what I was going to do next. I knew I wanted to go back to work, but I just wasn't sure what that was. And so, you know, as I was kind of looking around for that, I also recognized that I really wasn't as healthy as I wanted to be. And, and the first sign that I got um, that I really wasn't as healthy as I wanted to be was my skin. My skin had developed terrible adult acne, which I had not even had as a teenager. And, you know, no one had really told me, I mean, maybe I, I'm sure I had it in a science class at some point, but how that the skin is really your largest organ. And so often when you're, when you've got an issue and you're, you know, body, it's like, that's where you're going to see it first. And um, I'd also gained a bunch of weight through the pregnancies. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then my energy levels were really low, too. So I thought I'm going to use this time to really get back in shape. And I had been a competitive gymnast and went growing up. And so I knew how to work out and train. Um, but I, I really, um, you know, felt like in order to kind of really get healthy. I needed to eat right. And I need to, like I said to myself, if I go shop at Whole Foods, I'm sure I'm going to get healthy. You know, I, I laugh about it now right. it, because I, I really believed it was, I always knew that it wasn't just about working out or eating. It was both. But, yeah. um, but so I would make these trips to Whole Foods. And again, I, I finally had time on my hands and I was kind of fascinated by, you know, all these different products that were coming out and and Whole Foods, and I would buy them and just be, you know, in, interested in how these products got on the shelf. And some of them were smaller, you know, names that I had never heard of. And, and, um, 
And so one day I, uh, you know, I started losing weight um, when I actually had made a shift in what I drank. Interestingly, I'd seen a couple of doctors who shared with me that, you know, metabolism changes as you age, as you, you know, have lots of kids, all of these things that I thought I can't really do anything about at this point. And I, and so, you know, the, the directions were to, to me in order to get healthy, you need to keep a food diary. And nobody was ever talking to me about like a drinks diary. And I never really thought that there was anything wrong with what I was drinking because it was called diet and, you know, it was, it was diet Coke. So was my, you know, thing that I was drinking for years. I mean, I, I've now realized that I was actually, I mean, Diet Coke actually came out in the early 80s when, you know, I was I was looking for an alternative. I think I used to steal my mom's tabs and along the way and my mom always drank, you know, tab and I thought, oh, I don't necessarily love the taste of that. But, you know, when Diet Coke came out, it sort of solved the taste issue for me that I was looking for and it was diet. So it must be healthy. And when I stopped drinking Diet Coke and swapped it out for plain water um, over the next two and a half weeks, you know, I, I literally went down to zero. I, I wasn't, you know, taking it down a little bit. I was I was really, you know, just going cold turkey. I felt terrible um, for the next couple of weeks. Like I was really going through a detox that, you know, I just no one had educated me about that. I kept thinking that headaches would you know, I'd get bad headaches, but it was more than that. I mean, I just, my, I felt really funny. It was like the worst case of the flu. And, um, and so that was when after two and a half weeks, I really, you know, recognized that my clothes were fitting differently. I had definitely, you know, people were commenting that I had lost weight. I was still eating, but, you know, I was drinking lots of water. My skin was getting better. And, um, I got hopped on the scale and I had lost 24 pounds in two and a half wow. weeks, which was crazy. Wow. And, mm-hmm. and that for me was, again, like it wasn't just the weight, it was also my skin and my energy levels and stuff. But that for me was like, I was not only somewhat shocked, like I actually wondered if the scale was, was broken and, you know, went through that whole process. But I also felt like, I had been tricked for so many years into believing that, you know, diet soda was good for me. And I, you know, would like, I thought about how many other people probably were in the same situation. And, you know, my husband's father is a doctor. And I remember talking to him at some point about how frustrating it is being a doctor and knowing that, like, you can actually educate your patient but you, you can't force them to actually do what you suggest. Right. right. Like, and, and so I thought, you know, here's a situation where, you know, I didn't see a doctor or I saw doctors, but they, they weren't actually telling me to do this. And here I've done this and I've delivered all this change just by giving something up that, you know, that's that's just really interesting on a lot of levels and i i let I, I just sat there with it for a few months and you know and people obviously commented i kept losing weight was actually wondering if i was really sick and um mm-hmm. you know and and 
basically it was just this epiphany that, you know, it was just, I was now really eating real. I had gotten rid of this thing that was actually ultimately kind of, you know, the trigger and causing me, you know, to get sick. I mean, people always ask me, were you like, you know, diabetic? And I think I was probably, you know, this thing called type two diabetes was just starting out. I was probably, you know, pre type two diabetes. I was never diagnosed, but I think I mm -hmm. caught it prior to mm -hmm. actually it, it being a problem. And mm -hmm. um, so anyway, this like basically just sitting with, with this for a year, I lost the weight that I had wanted to lose in about six months. I had lost almost 50 pounds. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it was pretty dramatic and people hadn't mm -hmm. seen me in six months and they were like, oh my God, like what, ha mm -hmm. what happened? Pretty crazy. Mm -hmm. And so then I was, I was still looking for jobs. I was, you know, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. But I kept coming back to and, and really thinking about this whole like journey that I had been on to solving a problem for myself. And that's when I went back to my local Whole Foods in San Francisco and again was shopping and I happened to stop in the beverage aisle. And, you know, I had changed my water consumption um, from like basically I, I recognized that I didn't enjoy water. So I was, um, I was lining up drinks like glasses of water on the counter every day so that I would drink eight to 10 glasses of water. And I mean, it was ridiculous. And I thought this is not sustainable for if I'm alive for, you know, another 50, 60 years, like, I don't think I'll do this every single day. Like I would joke about right. that. And so then I started slicing up fruit and throwing it in the water and realized that that actually helped me to get, to drink the water. And so I looked in my local whole foods for fruit and water and everything had a sweetener in it. And it wasn't sugar. That was my issue. It was these diet sweeteners at the time it was NutraSweet and aspartame. And, you know, today mm -hmm. stevia. it's still tricking your brain into craving sweet. And I totally got it because it, I saw that by recognizing it and not falling prey to it, that I changed, you know, I solved my own problem and changed my health. And so I started having, I couldn't find this product in the stores. There were carbonated versions, um, kind of, but they had a lot of sodium in them. So they were like seltzer waters. Um, but I thought for me to drink eight glasses of water every day, it would need to be still water i could otherwise you you know explode just by all the bubbles and so i you know couldn't find it anywhere in san francisco i ended up having a trip to new york i looked for it in new york and i recognized that it just wasn't in the market like they were really trying to um get people to drink um uh, you know, the, the sweetened products. And that was the, it was the low calories. It wasn't even the zero calorie yet. And, um, and so I just like decided it'd be, I didn't even know if it was a company. I really thought of it as a, you know, product. Like people would, after I launched, people would say to me, oh, that's so cool that you launched that company. And, mm. and I was, I was even questioning, is it actually a company or is it a product? Mm -hmm that I launched. 
And um, yeah, so that was, you know, really kind of the, the early days of it. And, you know, that's when I asked a guy at Whole Foods if I, you know, got it, got him some product of this idea, could I actually get it on the shelf? I had no idea what I was talking about. It was just like one of these harebrained ideas like, oh, I mean, I'm sure he looked at me and said, sure, lady, like, you know, you'll get right on it. Right. And, <laughs> but I did. And I ended up bringing, um, you know, some samples back and, you know, the rest is history. Little did I know, you know, not, I mean, I have to say it was definitely exciting to see a physical product on the shelf. I had never worked in, you know, physical products. I'd always worked in bits and bytes or media air or anything, all of that kind of stuff. So having a physical product was really exciting, but, you know, I had no idea the challenges of distribution and, you know, and like just overall just growing a company, um, you know, and I, I always tell entrepreneurs, you know, we're a 15 year old startup and, and, um, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's crazy, right? Like to think yeah. that, and, you know, and I, I admirably ca call it a startup because I think that it's, um, you know, it's one that is, we still very, we have 200 people, you know, we're huge hockey stick growth, especially over the last year. And, um, but I think it's, it's definitely one where, you know, it's, I needed the consumer to catch up to where I was, right? Because right. I was not, you know, I was way ahead of it. I saw the white space, but I had no idea sort of how far the typical consumer was behind me. Right. You know, that's, it's such an incredible story. And there is an amazing interview with you on Medium via the Women of Silicon Valley. And it, it takes everyone through this story that you, you've, you've started to tell about how you built Hint. And there, and we'll put that link in the notes to this podcast, because there are incredible, there are just these, these great anecdotes in there about how you learned about the beverage industry, and this whole concept about learning the difference between uh, drinks that were marketed as healthy versus those that were actually healthy and um, the role of that local Whole Foods. I'm, I'm hearing you mention it a number of times and how important that, that local Whole Foods was. Yeah. Um, so so that that's so interesting to hear about too as part of the um, origin story of, of Hint. Uh, and uh, there was also some reference in there about you having friends who worked at Google and they started they started carrying the product in their kitchens and then people would leave there to go to other companies and then they would ask for it to be there and you had some growth there too. And um, it, it's just a great read for any aspiring entrepreneur. Uh, so what I'm curious about though is, you know, I hear what you were talking about at the beginning of your, uh, of your career uh, about when you're in these bigger company environments, even though you know th these these companies that you're mentioning were much smaller at the time um, when when you were there, but you're really building something inside these these companies, and then you um, left, and then then you built Hint, and I just wanted to know if you could comment on this contrast between building something within a corporate environment um, versus building something just completely on your own. And do you have what, like, are, is there 
something about having those resources and the scaffolding and the support of a big company that makes that those um, uh, th th those two building processes really different, or are there also similarities? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think there's definitely um, some similarities. I think that the the core look in every single large company um, that that I, I've been at, there's always been kind of this innovation. Um, group and that that works on something, and I think like the challenges with innovation are that it's uh, it it tends to be not where um, it it might be kind of an executive or maybe even the CEO's idea um, to sort of you know work on, but but the sort of the the top people may not be interested in working on that, right? So you might have an innovation going on within, um, you know, a Coca-Cola, for example, but the innovation team, um, you know, it'd be, they'd be hard pressed to actually, because it, it doesn't have revenue attached to it yet, it's new. They won't be pulling the head of Coca-Cola brand off of there to, you know, go and focus on, you know, this new idea, right? Because it still needs to be hatched and incubated and, you know, all that, that, and, you know, coddled along the way, there's, there's still a mm -hmm. lot of learnings, and it's, it's a bit slower. Because of that, um, I, you know, enjoyed and, and somehow found these like little businesses within these large companies. And, you know, people have asked me, oh, did, did you know that about companies? And I'm like, no, not really. I just, I liked, I think I was always really interested in kind of the new stuff going on, right? Like even as a kid, I would always want like the newest, latest and greatest toys or, you know, I'd always be interested in the newish sports that were going on out there because I just felt like, I don't know, like the rules weren't made yet. There were still, um, you know, things to be learned along the way. And there was just an opportunity to, you know, educate and learn. And I, I think, you know, I always say just in terms of my own team, like I always tell my team today that at every single level of this company or, or, of, or, or of your career, I should say, you always want to be learning, right? Just because you're like, you know, if you're yeah. a vice president or a director in a company and, you know, you're hiring a bunch of people who, you know, can't wake up and can't do anything without actually hearing directions from you, um, or they're not going to be teaching you anything, then you'll ultimately get really bored, right? You have to, there has to be some sort of back and forth communication and learnings that go on, you know, and, and so for me, I think like that's what innovation was always, you know, interesting in, in that sense what um there's always you know a budget and money that's that in large companies that's put towards it you know unfortunately i think that on if it starts to um cause too many distractions or cost more money or the results aren't sort of there in you know some amount of time that was laid out it's typically you know put to the side and and the the difference you know with with being in your own company and starting your business is that you know you could shut down the company but i think right. if you've made progress you know your timeline could be 
stretched or maybe you don't even have a timeline, right, to get stuff done. You're just sort of looking at it as like, okay, I've got goals that I'm going to meet and you're not actually setting a, a set timeline. Um, so I think like those are kind of the key differences, um, you know, and I, I think that when you look at, um, you know, I've always said too, that when large companies are, you know, launching competitors to your product as a, as an entrepreneur, I used to fear it. Now I, I get very excited by it because it just adds credibility to the category as a whole, mm -hmm. it grows the category as a whole, because they're often going to put money behind it, some money behind, you know, marketing or advertising. And if it, you know, whittles away at their core product line in any way, then, um, you know, it's unlikely, especially if they're a large public company, that they're going to want to pivot towards doing that instead of the other you know, thing, which is exactly kind of what's happening, happened in the beverage industry that, you know, some of the water companies that have sprouted up inside of soda companies um, has really not been their focus. In fact, oftentimes you don't even know who owns those water companies, you know, mm -hmm. that, that they're owned because it's just not, you know, the, the brand is not on the door or on the stock exchange. Right. And so I think, that that's kind of the core thing, um, you know, that I've seen is that it's, you know, if it's what you do every single day as an entrepreneur, um, that, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a difference. I, I'll also say that I grew up, um, having some knowledge, although, you know, hindsight 2020 years later, kind of figuring it out. My dad actually worked. Um, I always, view him as being an entrepreneur, um, but he never uh, set out on his own to be an entrepreneur. He was an entrepreneur first within a food company called Armor Food Company, um, mm -hmm. where he developed a brand called Dinner Classics, which ultimately became um, another brand um, that he created called Healthy Choice um, for oh, another wow. big company called ConAgra. So he worked for ConAgra um, for years. And, you know, that's, I mean, it's, it's fascinating because people will always say to me, you know, I don't like, should I go and start a company? I've got, I've got an idea and should I go do it? And I think my dad is a perfect example of, of somebody where for years as a kid, I would look at him and say, he's got all these great ideas. You know, he, I don't know why he doesn't go off and, and launch him. And, you know, for him, he had five kids um, you know, he had a lifestyle that he was used to and he, you know, didn't want to disrupt any of our lives by going and starting something on his own. And, and so, you know, it just depends on what your priorities are. Right. And right. I think he, like later on in life, he always wished that he had launched his own thing and, and maybe that kind of wore off on me. Right. And, um, just kind of watching him and his frustrations with dealing with a large company. But he also didn't have to figure out like freezer space inside of, you know, a Publix or a Kroger or Safeway or, you know, that was all kind of negotiated in sort of a big contract with with ConAgra for him. So um, when I asked him when we were first getting into some of those grocery stores and I asked him, 
you know, how to actually get more space and or get any space in these stores. He actually didn't know because that's not uh, what, you know, as it as the innovation team, he didn't know how to actually sell it. He typically wasn't involved in the sales side of it. He was, you know, he'd hear about it afterwards. So, um, so I think, you know, that's, that is kind of leads to a whole other piece where if you're actually developing it, which, you know, fast forward 15 years, what I always, uh, what I always tell entrepreneurs and I tell our team too, it's, you have to be able to, you know, really under understand every aspect of the company, you know, as a CEO, not just the financial side of the company uh, and the operating side of the company, but also, you know, when there's times like, you know, we're taping this th through COVID and the pandemic, you know, when you've right. got to pivot aspects of your business, actually understanding how to potentially do that and start pulling triggers fast was, you know, how we were able through this whole challenging time to actually, you know, exceed our expectations. Wow, that's incredible. So Kara, uh, a lot of what you're saying now leads into my next questions and, and they're related to each other, but um, I'm curious about uh, your two things. First of all, your your risk profile uh, and did, did your outlook or um, attitude about risk change as you got older uh, and was it a factor in terms of the early days of building Hint before you got really successful and into the big revenue numbers. And related to that, and some of the comments you just made about your father and you know ha having a situation where you didn't want to disrupt the lifestyle and and you know what was going on with with your family. Um, just the reality of what it means to be an entrepreneur and build a company and to have to go through a period of time, where you you may have a long delay in getting any income or you might have some lumpy unpredictable income and how do how do you did you manage this and what did you what do you advise uh, entrepreneurs in terms of both risk profiles and also cash flow yeah so i mean i was really fortunate i had um you know gotten lucky in many ways at aol and and was able, you know, was there for seven years during an incredible time. I mean, I built a business that was a billion dollars in revenue um, to Amazing. AOL. But in addition, yeah. you know, I had gotten some equity in the company. And so we um, and my husband as well at Netscape. And so we, you know, had some savings that we were able to kind of play around with. And, you know, this ultimately was like I said, an idea that I really felt strongly about was, you know, solving a problem for myself and could help a lot of people, which is what I, you know, wanted to ultimately try and work on. In terms of like risk profile, I think, you know, looking back, I had parents and older brothers and sisters that were always, you know, trying things and, and not, not really, and, and not only businesses, but also, um, you know, sports. Like my dad had one rule in our house that everybody um, played a sport. And so mm. it was like, 
And, you know, there was no, I mean, there was no arguments about this. It was just kind of like, oh, what sport are you playing? And so I was, I was in gymnastics. I played softball. I ran. um, I played tennis. I mean, like I was constantly just doing this. And I grew up in Arizona where, you know, the weather is generally, you know, pretty good except for the summer. And so, you know, it was very conducive to sort of that life. And, and, um, but I, I felt like there was never this conversation about like, you know, what if you fail? You can't do that. You're mm-hmm. not good enough. Instead, mm-hmm. it was like, what are you doing? You're actually doing something. And mm-hmm. so I I think that, and my mom was like the same thing. I, I talk about, you know, my dad doing his stuff with the food, but my mom took some time off to have her family. And then when I went to kindergarten, my mom decided um, actually two things. She was an art history major and, um, she, you know, everybody assumed that she was going to, uh, teach and that she had an education major and she was going to teach art. And she didn't really love teaching art to kids. Like she felt like they didn't necessarily have an appreciation. And so I remember, I think I was in first grade, she started this incredible program um, in the Scottsdale School District, actually teaching like six about six different artists. So she'd go in. She called the school districts and she said, "Can I go into the classroom and actually teach people how to recognize a Picasso or you know Renoir, like all of these different artists? Only like six of them, and the, who basically had very unique styles. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting when she passed away uh, eleven years ago. Um, there were people at her funeral who said, you know, your mom actually gave me like the cheat sheet to actually figure out who these artists were. And, but nobody told her, right. Mm. Like how to, nobody said to her, you know, well, you can't do that. You know, I mean, she figured it out. And so I was a kid that was just like watching this. And unfortunately, you know, she, she just felt like, I don't know how I ultimately get paid doing this and I need to make some money. So then her second love was fashion. And so she decided that she would go um, into retail and she worked at a department store. Um, she thought she was going to become a buyer. And then she, you know, ultimately almost became a personal shopper. Um, and, you know, before it was even called that because she loved fashion so much and children's mm-hmm. fashion, tons about it. But again, like living in a world where everybody was just trying stuff and like, you know, it was like, oh, that's not going to work. You know, you can't I can't do this business around teaching kids art because I don't know how the school districts are going to pay. Well, that's okay. It was learning. It was fun. People got something out of it. Now I move on. I mean, that was kind of the mentality that I grew up with. And I'm really thankful Um, you know, that I was able to, you know, of course, not recognize that then, but now recognize that now as, as like such a huge aspect of who I am today. Um, Right. But I think that, that, that like, for me, risk was never even like a a conversation. It was more about like, what are you trying today? And I think, you know, that's definitely one that is, um, you know, in a profile for more entrepreneurs today, um, what that I see as like such a huge aspect, like they're not, they're just not afraid to the typical, uh, you know, individual, they may look like they're fearless, but 
to us, you know, uh, disruptors. It's, it's like they, they're part of a tribe maybe, um, Mm -hmm. that is, that is just okay with trying lots of things that might not work. Some people may call it, you know, fail, like they're not afraid to fail, but they don't view it. They view it as like, oh, I'm going to go try and see what happens. So I think that that's like a key, key aspect. Yeah, that is a great mindset uh, to have as an entrepreneur. Um, wow, we're we're running out of time. I, I want to ask you, Kara, the uh, question and end by asking the question that we ask all of our podcast guests, which is, what is your best piece of advice for our relauncher audience, even if it's something that we've already talked about today? You know, I think it's it's really... Um, you know, I have a book coming out in, in October called Undaunted. And, you know, the story of Undaunted will weave in some of these stories that you've heard today. But I think it's also just about, you know, recognizing that everybody has doubts, everybody has, you know, doubters that will place these doubts in your mind, but it's sort of what you ultimately do with those doubts and, you know, how you push forward and maybe even, you know, view those things, you know, as challenges. Sometimes in, in my life, it's also been, I, I would, you know, look at that, the person who has doubted me and, you know, go and try and do something because I thought, well, yes, of course I can go do it, but then recognize um, that maybe it's not how I thought it was going to turn out. Maybe I even like, you know, hugely failed in some way, but that helped me to ultimately do the next thing and get me where I wanted to go. So don't be afraid to be undaunted as mm. is the message. Mm-hmm. I love that title. And I love this approach to essentially naysayers, you, you, you know, and how, how, how you respond to them. And I was going to ask you um, a, a little more about the book. And also, if you can tell our audience, first of all, where they can find out more about Hint and, and uh, related products, and also um, anything about the upcoming book launch that you want to mention. Yeah, so the book comes out in October, will be in pre-sale in, in July. It's available on Amazon. Um, as well as, you know, lots of bookstores. And it will be available on our website, which of course sells Hint, um, but it will also have the book on there. And that website address is drinkhint.com. Drink Hint or Hint is also available in, in Amazon as well as Target and lots of grocery stores like Whole Foods and Safeway and Publix and Kroger and, and lots of stores, great stores like that. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it's, uh, it's really exciting. Um, it was three years in the works of, you know, writing and sort of, you know, a lot of questions that I would get from people. And I'm a huge believer that often, you know, we solve our own problems. We solve our own doubts. Um, when we hear other people's stories, my hope is that people read this and think, gosh, if she can do it, I can go do it. And, um, you know, there's definitely, um, again, when people look at stories and see and think of, you know, oh, they're so courageous, oh, they're so fearless, um, you know, I think that the thing that you can give them the most credit for is that they actually tried. And and that's what I think that, you know, there's definitely um, some hairy stories along the way. And, you know, 
potentially shutting the company down a couple of times. And, you know, that that is, um, you know, during trying times, too, I think that's the that's the key thing. Do you have the ability to, you know, kind of look at the situation and figure out quickly how to move it forward? And oftentimes, I mean, somebody interviewed me the other day and through, you know, this whole COVID situation, they said, you're probably the calmest, you know, business person I've, you know, seen. And I, I've also, you know, seen some other, I've seen 9-11, I've seen the financial crash of 2009, like I've seen a lot of other things. And I, I also, you know, recognize that there's some things that you can, you know, change and there's some things that you can't, right? And um, that you... And I think that your biggest ability to um, kind of look at the whole situation and figure out what you can do is just so incredibly powerful versus actually just, you know, closing the book and saying, okay, I give up, right? Like, I think that that, that is not going to get you to the end game. That's going to get you, you know, to close down your company, maybe, or close down your life in some way, but that's not ultimately, you know, what your journey, in my opinion, is about. Yes, you know, there's a lot to be said for having that long term perspective and and with that many relaunchers have because we have been around for a while. You know, this is this is not our first downturn. Uh, and I'm so appreciative of you pointing that out. You're an incredible role model, Kara, for relaunching as an entrepreneur. It's been such a privilege to have you as a guest today. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. And thanks for listening to 321 Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman-Cohen, the chair and co-founder of iRelaunch and your host. For more information on iRelaunch, go to iRelaunch.com. And if you like this podcast, be sure to rate it on iTunes and your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to share this podcast with a friend on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Thanks for joining us.